Tune in to The Onyx Report, a bi-weekly analysis of how black males of all stripes experience American society and navigate misandry. Join me, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State and founder of the concept of black masculinism to examine the issues that impact the lives of black males. From history to politics, media to policy, spirituality to economics, join me to explore the hidden stories of black men and boys and we'll discern them from the stories imposed on them. Listen to the Onyx Report live on innerlightradio.com every first and third Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern. Check out episodes on demand at your convenience on my website at www.thassanjohnson.com. Also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash dr.hassanj, Twitter at twitter.com slash lordhassan, YouTube at Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, and finally, my Black Masculinist blog at www.newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com. critically analyzes the experiences, histories, and perceptions of black males in American society. I'm Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State, black male advocate, and black male studies scholar. In the program, we examine current events while engaging concepts ranging from institutionalized anti-black misandry to gynocentrism from a black masculinist perspective. Our goal is to remind people of black men's humanity. Call in after a half hour to the show at 310-928-7733. All right, all right. Welcome to the Onyx Report. Uh, this is a day I've been looking forward to for quite a while. Uh, we have the uh, pri- uh, pr- uh, privilege of interviewing my good brother, Dr. Tommy J. Curry. Uh, so we are going to get to that momentarily. Just want to briefly uh, kind of announce a couple things. The Next two shows, the first of which will be, um, remember the show is first and third Wednesdays of each month. So August 7th, we will have uh, Dr. Oshan Gadsden, uh, psychologist, uh, followed by the uh, August 21st show with Dr. Ronald Neal, uh, scholar in religion. So just kind of keep your calendar posted on those two things. Also, um, kind of ran a social media request for information on what a good set of hashtags would be for the Onyx Report. So special shout out to Dominique Huff for suggesting hashtag Onyx Report, <laughs> hashtag Black Men Speak, and hashtag Black Masculinism. So keep an eye out for those and definitely participate. Special shout out to Blake Yo's Hooked on Onyx. We didn't go that direction, but he had me on the floor with it. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I would like to jump right in because I know uh, Tommy and I can do an hour with our eyes closed, and I know people are going to want to call in at the halfway mark. Uh, so I want to definitely take advantage of that. Remember, the call-in number is 310-928-7733. Uh, but today we have Dr. Curry. The, now, I have your credentials written written out, but I would really 
like to hear you say them. Because oh, wow. uh, I can't use the old ones anymore, and I want to use a new one, but I want to hear you say it. What is your current standing, sir? Uh, so I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of Edinburgh, and I hold a personal chair in Africana philosophy and black male studies. Now, now tell us the significance of a personal chair, and if if you if you feel so inclined, share with us your age. Uh, so I'm 39 years old. I'm going to hit 40 in a few months. Uh, but uh, a personal chair is is basically in the UK what we would call uh, a distinguished or a distinguished professor or endowed chair uh, in the United States. Uh, so it's one of the highest positions that you could get in the UK Academy. <laughs> now, how many publications? <laughs> uh, let's see. So I think I'm at 70 articles and three books. Now, see, I don't know how people are in and out of the academic world, but I just want to say 70 publications before the age of 40, let alone three books, uh, particularly award winning work is is virtually unheard of, especially with black male scholars. Am I incorrect? No, that's that's correct. That's correct. Uh, you know, black black men are pretty much forced to the academy to only speak about race or, or racism. So very rarely do you have a black male scholar. Uh, able to get any kind of recognition for studying issues of gender, uh, especially black men, uh, unless they uh, kind of tout themselves as a feminist or queer theorist. Now, why is that, do you think? Well, I mean, it's the way the academy developed. I mean, you know, you see, you see a long history of gender being understood as feminism uh, from the 1970s forward. And unlike uh, black nationalism or any of the black militancy movements, uh, feminist ideations of gender uh, were largely reformist and funded uh, by a lot of organizations, Carnegie, Ford, etc. Whereas, whereas black ideas of radicalism or nationalism were defunded. So, you know, if you want to be a Ford fellow, and you know, I'm sure we, we've talked about this briefly in the past, uh, you have to take largely a cultural studies and anti-sensualist, a feminist, uh, or kind of intersectional approach to studying race or racism. Um, and, you know, those perspectives are uh, largely thought to be anti-essentialist. Uh, they're arguments that are going to be largely integrationist uh, and basically say America has to do better. Uh, but with feminist projects, you can largely be essentialist, uh, largely nationalistic, right? Because you could advocate for women and say that the interests of women are first and foremost uh, and that all other groups are antagonistic to those interests. If you do that for black people, it's incredibly threatening. Uh, so that's why you have the prevalence of a strong feminist ideology uh, in the academy, but you don't have so much of a strong black nationalist, black militancy, or even, or even you know, a, a material approach. Even if you're just talking about the material differences of races, of race and race in the United States, uh, you're not really going to get any of that. Uh, and that's not only is that definitely true, but as a as a Ford, a Ford fellow, I can say I definitely agree. Uh, I was, you know, my entire graduate school experience. Uh, I was brought into to gender studies as 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 most people as most people have been through uh, feminism and black feminism in particular. So at the time I did my dissertation, I got a Ford fellowship mainly because my work was everything you kind of described at that time. But you kind of went a different track. I mean, you I would say, you know, I use the term masculinist. I would refer to your work as black masculinist in its focus, uh, especially in regard to gender. But you didn't it didn't seem like you transitioned out of feminism the way many of us had to. You kind of came out the gate with a clear understanding of what you wanted to do. Can you tell us what that was like and what, what you did? 
Yeah, you know, so I was a high school debater uh, and a college debater. So, you know, for me, I was always reading different books about, you know, gender, about racism, etc. And, you know, when I got to the feminist literature, it differed so much from the other stuff that I was reading because, you know, when you read books in our, our law journals or when you're reading uh, even the stuff back then on racism, it was all based in immaterial evidence. So when I get to Bell Hooks, I'm like, well, where are the citations? And I actually took a class in black feminism at DePaul University uh, where, you know, I saw no problem. You know, I was interested in gender. I was interested in race, uh, but I was taking the class. And, you know, throughout the class, I was like, well, look, you know, I hear these assertions made by Patricia Hill Collins, made by Kimberly Crenshaw, made by Bell Hooks. But where's the evidence? Mm-hmm. And and me asking for evidence was just, you know, heretical. It's like, <laughs> how mm-hmm. dare you ask that there what's the evidence for? I was like, well, I can't accept things on faith. That's never been the way that I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not the way that I do scholarship. So I was like, you know, it's a perspective, et cetera. Um, but for a long time, I was reading, you know, black feminist literature and taking feminist classes, et cetera. So it's not, it's not you know, my, my criticisms of feminism do not come from a place of ignorance, despite what many black feminists or intersectionality theorists may say. Uh, the issue is... Is, is that when you start putting their theories into practice, when you start looking at the actual effects of them, at the actual effects of them, or even the evidence for them, um, those things turn off well she to be misinterpretations of data, uh, selective readings, or just outright false. Uh, so I think that that's what brought me to a different view, right? I didn't have to kind of go through feminism and then become disgruntled with it. I just started off was like, well, look, when you compare it to what everybody else is saying, this stuff just doesn't make as much sense to me. Well, and you came through uh, pretty clear pretty early with that because I know for most of us and even some of the people we both mentor, one of the difficult hurdles that graduate students, for example, have to to traverse is dealing with black feminist scholars that they have to work through in order to get to the next level, to complete, you know, uh, dissertations and so on and so forth and and find jobs and get recommendations. One of the things I hear over and over again is, you know, I don't believe this, but I... I have to figure out how to graduate, you know, intact. And, and you, you seem to have navigated that. Did you get any pushback or any threat early on that you wouldn't be able to advance in your career oh, after absolutely. grad school? Absolutely. That- I, I, I was at a post. I was on a postdoc, um, you know, at Penn State University, and and I gave a uh, a talk on Martin Delaney's. I, I actually posted in the Black. Uh, newsletter, Black Experience of Philosophy newsletter at the time. Um, and, you know, a black feminist was like, well, it doesn't matter how much you write, you'll never get a job. You know, and it's interesting because, you know, this this particular uh, black feminist in question didn't get tenured at her previous institute. She was out like six years before me and was doing a postdoc afterwards. Um, you know, and, and I think she just got tenure in 2014 or 15 or so and wow. you know, I was actually tenured before her you know but the point was was that there's this fundamental belief that because I wasn't saying what she agreed with right. that in the university uh, my work wouldn't be respected and I wouldn't even be able to find employment because you know I was criticizing and, in, and it's funny even back then I wasn't really even doing uh, gender I was just doing kind of this very material intellectual history about black people and I, I criticized a book at the time by Tommy Shelby you know she was like well this is too radical you're focusing on men etc you'll never get a job and I'm like well you know it is what wow. it is you know wow. but, but those are the kinds of threats 
you know, but this is this is what interest this is what's interesting, right? Is that you know uh, a person who didn't have a tenure track job even at that time was very comfortable in telling a black man that he wouldn't get a job because they didn't think very highly of their re- of his re- my research, mm-hmm. and I find that this kind of intimidation is what a lot of black men go through because contrary to the ideology, um, black men are you know one of the most underrepresented groups in the academy next to brown men and of course indigenous people etc so when you're outnumbered by black women you're outnumbered by white women you're outnumbered by latinas then those worldviews are going to frame the way that people look at you and if everyone's just accepting feminism or the ideas of feminism that black men are aggressive that black men are rapists that black men are predators off jump it is not only hurting you in terms of what you can write about, but it's also hurting you in terms of how people perceive you, which is why most people are going to choose uh, other groups of, of minorities, be they white women, black women, Latinas, etc., uh, over black men. Exactly. But tell us how the politics play out in philosophy, because you've had, you know, a foot in Africana studies and philosophy mm-hmm. and gender studies. And it seems like on all three levels the push for empiricism in your work has been groundbreaking in each of those contexts. You know, I, I remember uh, your piece you did when you were really examining or re-examining the entire field of Africana studies. Yes. This was probably about two, three, about three years ago. Mm-hmm. I think the piece you had, you'd done on that one. Um, and then, you know, you're doing the same in philosophy and gender studies. How have you been received in those areas as well? Oh, well, look, I, you know, I, I tell everybody, I was like, you know, anytime you mention Tommy Curry, it's 50-50. Some people think I'm the most brilliant person uh, to, to come about, uh, you know, since in, in the in the 20th, 21st century. Other people think I'm the devil. Uh, and, and the, but see, this is, the, the reason for it is, is because nobody wants their theories tested, mm-hmm. right? Like, you, and you'll notice, like, none of my work is like, well, I'm defending this ism. Right. So I don't defend nationalism any more than I defend feminism. Right. Um, I certainly see more interest in nationalism, not because of its politics, but because of its analysis. Right. It's looking at economics. It's looking at law, et cetera. Um, But that's just the way I do scholarship. Most people uh, in philosophy are like, well, look, here's my ism, be it feminism or pragmatism or X, Y and Z. And I'm going to defend that till I die. And I just don't find those people interesting. Right. Um, So what philosophers usually do is they'll say, well, you know, Curry, you don't understand X, Y, and Z, which I laugh at given how much I read. So then I start talking to about X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, you're still wrong. I'm like, well, on what basis, right? Like, is you don't have any evidence. You haven't really read everything that you claim you have. And then, and then I'm wrong because it doesn't mesh with your ideology. So in philosophy, it's all ideology. And given that black feminists in philosophy um, control so much of the discourse and gender, right? Um, you know, they largely try to censor my work. Um, I've had incidences where, you know, junior faculty members to me have, you know, tried to stop me from publishing things on blogs, you know, nothing major, but it's an inconvenience nonetheless, you know. Um, but that's that's the way it is. And I think what ends up happening is that people pretend that, well, because I'm a woman or because I'm an underrepresented group, I don't even know what that means, given that we're all underrepresented groups doing the work, um, that I get to censor things that I don't like. Uh, so philosophy has a huge problem because it doesn't have a real peer review system. Uh, mostly you're evaluated based on whether or not you agree with someone else. So if you agree with, you know, I mean, who's popular now? I mean, if you, if you basically agree with reformism, integrationism, if you cite white authors, if you cite black feminists, you'll get stuff published. If you don't, then, you know, it's much harder. 
you know. But there's, um, but there's a kind of hypocritical nature to a lot of this standpoint epistemological work because if it's based on representation and black males are least represented, then you would think that would have some type of well, that's uh, equity. Right. But people hate black men, so they don't afford them standpoint epistemology. Right? I mean, this is this is the contradiction. It's that you can, as you know, you can go through any data set that's that's published, that's publicly available. You can look at what's happening to black men, and black men come out at the bottom of most of those of most of those categories. If you're talking about the academy, you're certainly talking about black women outnumbering black men, both undergrad and professors, at least twenty, most likely thirty years. Right. Mm-hmm. So. The idea that black men can't say something about uh, what black feminists say about them or that they have to use black feminism to get published uh, is, is ridiculous. Because if we, you're right, if we were true to standpoint epistemology, they would say, well, look, the people who are at the bottom or disproportionately uh, affected by things would have the best knowledge about them. So that means that, you know, even in terms of sexual violence, uh, domestic abuse, incarceration, et cetera, black men would would be the ones that have the best perspective on those issues. But the the academy somehow denies that they say, well, we don't want to hear from men anymore. But I was like, well, I thought the argument was, well, whoever's the most oppressed in these respective issues um, have a have a fundamental and organic relationship to that oppression. To that material oppression, that experience matters. Well, not so much when you talk about black men. And it's this kind of hypocrisy um, that I'm constantly frustrated with, which is why I really don't even engage in those debates anymore, because it's not really an issue of debating whether or not black men are oppressed or black men's relationship to black women. Hell, we don't even study the black family anymore. The real issue is, do you center uh, black women uh, or LGBTQ issues in, in every analysis? And while I'm certainly not antagonistic to those forms of experience and why we should be studying them because they're part of the black community, et cetera, it seems disingenuous to say that the only way that you can study black people are through these two experiences because that's not all of black people. While and at we the don't... same time, we get the same indoctrination in film and in media. So we see it in all of these different realms from higher education to, to media. And it's the same message. Same yeah. idea. Yeah. And, and, I, and I guess I get frustrated because, you know, I think with my work, like if you, you know, you've read my work. So, you know, I think if someone becomes hard pressed to actually prove that I'm not studying or understanding or taking into consideration somebody's experience or even the social position of, of black women or even black homosexuals. However, when you start going through that in terms of data, <laughs> right? When you start looking at the things that affect black men uh, or gay black men, uh, internalized homophobia, uh, HIV risk, uh, domestic violence, uh, lower life expectancy, you know, when you, you know, these types of things, right? Um, people don't want to have that conversation because mm-hmm. when, when you start analyzing gay black men as black men, then you find out that the trajectory of their health outcomes, their psychological stressors, the way that they're perceived in society is pretty much the same. Right. And, and people, you know, and, and that's why I say it's like, I don't, I don't know. It's like you, it's like people want you to take on this ideology that says that, oh, well, if you're going to study the queer experience, the queer experience has to be distinctly different from everything else. And given the work I do with black men and Jewish men and other victims of genocide and, and wartime violence, I just don't agree with that position. I mean, the way that I look at black men in the 
United States is different, but it certainly overlaps with the way that Jewish men were treated during the Holocaust. If I'm looking at what's going on in uh, the rapes in Yugoslavia, or if I look at what happened to the rape of, of black men uh, during the war in Co the Congo, then what I found is high levels of sexual violence, high levels of disposability and dehumanizing rhetoric and language, right? Mm -hmm. Like all these things apply. So you're asking me to turn my back on empirical evidence and case studies because it doesn't fit your political ideology in the United States. And I think that that's a, that's a recipe for disaster. It's why the stuff that we write in the United States doesn't travel where, uh, well across the border. Meanwhile, you're doing groundbreaking work, even in terms of LGBT work, because when you look at the man not, you actually dealt with an unpublished piece in there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Uh, you know, so the, the chapter Lost in a Kiss is actually uh, based on my discovery of Eldridge Cleaver's uh, manuscript, The Book of Lies, where he talks about a same-sex relationship that he had with uh, a brother named Richard in prison. And instead of me, you know, and this is, and this is, you know, I say throughout the book that, look, you know, the interesting thing about Cleaver is not that he says that he's, that he calls himself homosexual throughout uh, the text, but the interesting thing is, is that he looks at the prison as a homoerotic institution mm -hmm. and as a gay black man, right? So he's saying that, look, you know, I think I love Richard and, and, you know, because he has this long, this long exposition of um, him having sex with Richard, right? And it's like, was well, it because I'm horny, or is it because I love him or care about him? So he's actually having these these images and these debates within himself. But then he's looking at the prison and saying, well, look, but like, how does the prison create the ability of other groups of men to be raped and for white guards to actually enjoy that? So he talks about the white everybody having sex in the chapel and the white guards having these speakers where they can hear black men having sex with each other. And they knew it existed and they actually created or allowed for that space to exist. So I look at that because I'm saying, well, look, one of the issues that we have in racism isn't just the hatred of black men, but it's also the homoerotic fascination of black men. Mm -hmm. And I actually read black uh, uh, gay black male authors to get this. People like Vincent Woodard, uh, you know, uh, I use Calvin Warren's Calvin work. Warren, from, yeah. yeah, Calvin Warren, right. You know, uh, this, this stuff is just so immensely important. Mm -hmm. But because the way that we look at black men is extremely uh, hypersexual and there's a certain heterophobia, you know, to use Ron O'Neill's work associated with it. Um, mm -hmm. There's this idea that a black man can't understand anything beyond his penis. <laughs> so because right. I'm a straight right. black man, somehow I'm not, you know, and this, but this is so important, right? Because I'm a straight black man, I'm not really doing research. I'm just defending my penis. It's just the most ridiculous It's just the most ridiculous thing in the world But this is the kind of ideology That's so uh, popular In the academy So it's like I could come to you and say something true About black men be they straight right. or gay right. But because I'm saying it as a straight black man Then that, some, that statement That evidence somehow becomes indictable And it's the, it's the strangest You know utilization of an ad hominem That I've ever heard as a philosopher you know, where I see that a lot, especially in terms of your online discussions, your social media discussions, is when you when you profile criminal exoneration cases, you know, black men who've gotten out on DNA evidence and spent decades in prison. And the pushback is still, you know, despite the evidence that this is still the appropriate way to go, it seems like what oh, yeah. what do you what do you see with that? 
Well, no, but that's the disposability we have of black men, right? Black men have no personhood or humanity that we're deemed to respect. So who cares if an innocent black man is locked away for decades of their lives? Right. You know, and I was having an argument with somebody the other day about this with R. Kelly. I was like, listen, nobody's defending R. Kelly. The question is, how is it that you know R. Kelly's been raped by his sister? And you're not saying, let's go arrest his sister. You're saying, just arrest R. Kelly. Like, this is this is a, a consistent issue. That, that and, I, and I think black men have a reason to be upset about it. Not in the sense that R. Kelly should somehow, you know, be uh, spared, you know, criminal uh, charges. Mm-hmm. I think he first needs mental health issues, you know, counseling, et cetera. But nonetheless, is the issue is not him being innocent. The issue is how is it that when these crimes get adjudicated in the public, then the person that you attach to it is always a black man, mm-hmm. right? Because even statistically at who the biggest rapists are just based on population you're going to be talking about white men and white women they commit mm-hmm. overwhelmingly they commit the most rapes and the most made to penetrate right assaults in the, in the united states but somehow they're a white woman is never going to be the face of sexual violence a white man is going to get off like that guy uh that broderick guy okay. or kevin spacey yeah yeah, or Kevin Spacey, right? You know, who's who's now saying that the somehow the the accuser um, mysteriously recants or whatnot, right? Like, you know, white men have been raping since the beginning of time. You know, so have white women, but mm-hmm. nobody's going to associate them with rape. Black women have insane amounts of rape and, and made to penetrate cases uh, and victimization, but nobody charges them. It's always black men, right? and you- that's the thing. Can you speak a little bit more about that? When we talk about the made to penetrate cases, much of the time I find, of course, black men are, are kind of dismissed from this. The, the issue itself is dismissed, but most especially black men. What is your work taking us to now in, in regard to that? Well, I think my work is, you know, again, I, I always try to be humble about the work because it's really just reading evidence. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like I went out and looked up a fact and now I'm reporting why the fact changes our theory. You know, I don't I guess for me, I don't see it as groundbreaking or, or contentious, right? It's just, it's just, what does the fact say? Um, but, but the reality of the situation is, is that the definition of rape changed, right? Uh, I think a lot of people just don't know that, uh, despite it happening, you know, several years ago. So the the issue, the issue with rape is that, you know, the UCR defines rape now. Um, well, the old definition of rape used to be the carnal knowledge of a female forcibly against her will. Right. Um, the new definition of rape uh, is really based on uh, penetration, um, no matter how slight of the vagina or the anus or any kind of other uh, body part or, and even includes oral penetration right mm-hmm. um, of a sex organ of another person and the big focus there is of course on consent so if any of this happens without the consent of the victim um, that's rape and what I find personally fascinating is that this definition of rape is very similar um, to the definition of rape in the elements of crimes that's used in international law whereas you know if a perpetrator kind of invades the body of a person that results in penetration right then, uh, without consent that that's rape so the UCR's change in definition that happened in or took effect July 1st of 2013 is now very similar to the definition of rape that's being utilized by international courts uh, through the elements of crime, etc. And the reason that that's important is because um, in the element of courts uh, or, or the element of crimes, I'm sorry, there's an idea that the definition of rape is gender neutral. Right. Uh, in the United States, however, be, largely because of feminism, the idea of rape is that it's female specific. Mm-hmm. So a large debate that we're having is the ways in which men are made to penetrate women and other men or even children. Right. Uh, but that's not perceived. 
So if a little boy is made to penetrate a woman, they're not gonna, they usually, are they, a lot of people have a problem understanding how that little boy was made to rape or forced to rape. And because we don't see forced rape um, as a category of analysis or victimization in the United States, it becomes very, very difficult uh, to convince a lot of people of what's actually happening to these young men and boys. Now, if you shift to the international context, it, it's much easier because during wartime or genocides, uh, one of the major issues that you have are men being forced to penetrate or rape family members or perform oral sex or other sexually humiliating acts. So in a wartime context, you can see very easily how men are vulnerable to this kind of violence under the threat of death. In the United States, because we don't see black men in that way, we don't see the power dynamic between a 21, 25, 30, 40 year old woman and a nine year old boy because we understand black men as beasts, as hyperagentic, mm -hmm. right? Uh, as potential mm -hmm. rapists anyway. So we, we interpret that interaction as, well, that's just his nature, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and this is, this is, you know, of course, why we talk about anti black misandry. The issue is not that black men are not sexually victimized, right? The CDC data overwhelmingly shows that black men um, report contact sexual violence at higher rates than black women in the United States. Mm -hmm. The issue is we don't have a language to talk about or understand this in relationship to the kind of vulnerability and really the ideology that black feminism says, which holds that black men are rapists and that black women are victims. Are so a large part of my criticism has always been, well, black feminism just takes the same dichotomy that people like Susan Brown Miller takes when uh, she talks about the rape of men. Men are mm -hmm. rapists, men are victims of rape. So if you're saying that black feminism is somehow different than white feminism, then why does it just utilize all the white feminist theories? Mm -hmm. Right? Bill Hooks is reading Brown Miller, <laughs> right? Um, mm -hmm. Kimberly Crenshaw is reading... Um, Ellen Pence, or really Susan Schusterman, which is a friend of Ellen Pence, right? Like they're just reading the same people and then saying, "Oh, let's put race on this." It's not, it's not different theories. But the contrast there is, even in graduate school, it, it would be a like a, a heated debate in classes where black feminists would make the argument that their feminism had nothing to do with white feminism whatsoever. No, that's just a lie. It, yeah, I mean, to, right? Yeah, I mean, we could we could argue it, but it's not true. Like that's what I'm saying is that you know. I guess I guess at this point in my career, I know people say lots of things, but when it comes down to it, I was like, okay, well, show me show me the study that black feminists use to justify their theory of rape. Mm -hmm. Then Emily goes back to Bell Hooks. It's like, well, who is Bell Hooks reading to get her theory of rape? Well, she's reading Susan Brownman, mm -hmm. right? If you do the same thing with Patricia Hill Collins, or you do the same thing with Kimberly Crenshaw, you could go through their footnotes. It's very clear about who they're reading. They're not coming up with these new theories because black feminists didn't develop new theories of sociology about black male deviance. They used old theories from the 1960s and 70s to mm -hmm. base their theory of black men. So it's not, you know, this is it's, it's not, I, I don't, I, I guess I'm trying to find a, a, a the best way to say it this is not a situation where black feminists developed organic theories about black men and then started using that to analyze them these are theories where they applied theories of white sociology to black men and said let's talk about our experiences raced women so mm -hmm. you know and i think that that's a real problem right well not only do i want you to go into uh intersectionality because i think there's a connection there in terms of when you start talking about the production of theory and what it's really rooted in i'd like to get your perspective on that but i also want to say this is i think the importance of not only your work in general but especially the man not in terms of setting a foundation because what you're doing in that is not only philosophical it's historical it's database and data driven we had not really seen that kind of work done you know, at least in the contemporary era for black men, 
And so one of the groundbreaking pieces to that is you not only situate what you just described in terms of the origins of, of modern black feminism, but also in terms of uh, the initial suffragist movement. Oh, um, that's not something people talked about. You connected uh, a couple of pieces there that, you know, were right there. And as you say, they were in plain sight in terms of the, the data, but nobody else really said it to that extent that white feminism in and of itself has always positioned itself against black men in a oh, very absolutely. distinct way. So if you could, if you could draw that connection and take us up through uh, intersectionality, I'd appreciate it. Well, look, I mean, again, this is, this is what I mean when I say I'm just reading, right? Mm -hmm. um, when you go back through all the speeches uh, from Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, Phoebe Cousins, etc., it's very clear they don't like black men and they're not a big fan of black men and getting suffrage rights, right? Um, if, if, you, if you read those texts seriously, then what you see is a, is, is, a, is a very common theme that emerges. White women thought that if black men get suffrage because they were racially and sexually superior, uh, then they, would, they should rule over black men. And that's why it gets so frustrated, because when you look at any of this, the stuff that white female historians are doing, it's very clear that suffrage rights were not about equality. Suffrage rights are about the right to rule over others, which is why the right of a vote was so important. They were basically how we think of self-determination today. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you have white women who are like, look, these black men are getting the right to vote. These black men are savages. These black men are rapists. These black women are going to abuse women and children. These black men are lazy and idle. Why should this savage get the right to vote? And that's, that's literally what they're saying. You know, I'm just mm -hmm. quoting. So then when you when you fast forward that to, well, then what was the issue with feminism and suffrage? The issue was, well, look, you know, white women didn't want to surrender any kind of power and certainly didn't want it to be ruled over by inferior groups of men, which is why much of the feminist push after the 1870s. Um, after black men actually get the right to vote uh, is about showing that black men are dangerous and inferior. So when you get the Rebecca Latimer Feltons, when you get the Phoebe Cousins making speeches about how black men are going to take away and destroy society, that's them fighting against black male enfranchisement. And I think that the recent work that Stephanie uh, E. Jones Rogers does showing that black men were actually owned by lots of black women. Well, black people were owned by black women. They were 40% of slave owners in the United States really does push that point home because yeah, it's okay. showing that it's not that white women had an inferior position to black people. White women were not oppressed by black men because right. black, white women owned black men, mm -hmm. right? Like this, this, this is what I mean when I say the historiography has to change. If white women own black men and white women are also the originators of feminism and suffrage rights, then my story makes complete sense that this is about taking ownership over your old property, right? Your newly mm. emancipated property. So mm. there's no way that you think that the, the objects, the animals that you own should decide your fate. Mm. So that's why you get white women pushing for the white woman's burden. They're supporting imperialism. They're supporting the KKK at the turn of the century. They're mm -hmm. supporting segregation because they don't see themselves as an oppressed group. That idea of white women being oppressed doesn't happen until the mid-1940s when you're starting to have this collapse of U.S. imperialism, right? And mm -hmm. you're leading up to world wars. So then they turn back domestically and say, well, how do we make ourselves a minority population? And then you read Helen Hacker's work on women as a minority group, and you see that the way they did it was by looking at a black men and Jews. So mm -hmm. all the white men right in that period of time, Alva Murdoch, Helen Hacker, Simone de Beauvoir, who's coming up with the idea of what gender actually is, is getting this from, well, how are black men treated in the South? How are they treated under segregation? In fact, there's a letter from um, 
Simone de Beauvoir to uh, Jean-Paul Sartre actually talking about John Dollar's book, which was based on black men in segregation, when Dollar argues that black men are the most oppressed group under segregation because patriarchy is designed to keep them out of society so that white men have access not just to white women, but to black women as well. So this is this is the creation of gender in America. Right. And this, mm-hmm. is the, this is the category that we use to demonize black men, despite the fact that it's black men's experiences that the category itself is based on. So you get to the 1970s and 1980s and white women now have this category that means uh, additionally oppressed. Right. Whereas the idea before then was that woman was nation or mother. And suddenly black men are demonized for by through a category that they actually formed. And this is, this is the sickness of white supremacy. This is the sickness of, of people, not of scholars, not having to do any kind of research to get published. Mm. Right. This is why ideology supplanted research. And I think that the stuff with intersectionality um, is really is really an accumulation is the pinnacle of this is that you're like, well, these these categories intersect, but you don't know what the categories mean. <laughs> you, you, you assume you say, well, race and gender matter. Well, in the legal context, that makes perfect sense, right? Because you created categories of race and sex and national origin. So, in the Title VII jurisprudence, that makes perfect sense because you're saying multiple dynamics come into play. But you're saying that that works all the way historically. Well, I'm confused because the modern concept of gender that you use in Title VII wasn't invented until the 1940s, and it didn't become sociologically relevant until the 1970s, right? Where they're writing articles about separate of studying women outside of the family unit. So. If this is a term that is able to explain all of history, then how do you account for the ways that definitions actually change, mm. right? That people actually change what they mean by certain terms. And I think that this is the dangerous part of how we use the term because we're not intersectionality doesn't tell you anything. Like nobody if you if I do an analysis of racism and I only and I say, well, I want to find out how black women experience pain, uh, right, during treatment, etc. When I when I do that experiment, um, it doesn't mean that I'm going to find out something different than if I say that it was intersectional because I'm studying the same object. I'm studying the same groups of people. Right? I'm studying the same subjects. But somehow intersectionality is like, oh, well, because we're studying black women, it's race and gender. Well, that's how you're interpreting. But I'm not missing something about that experience. Right now, mm-hmm. if I analyze and say, well, it's only racism, then I could be missing something. Right. But the fact that black women disproportionately experience pain to say white women doesn't mean that I'm missing something about the facts of the world. It's a question of interpretation. And I think that's dangerous because what intersectionality asserts, no matter the context, is that even when black men suffer the greatest ills, the greatest danger, the greatest incarceration, the greatest homicide, the greatest death in the society, they experience that because they're privileged, because patriarchy attacks them because they're men. And because they're men and patriarchy thinks they're more valuable than women, the males have privilege. And it becomes a reason, right? It becomes a rationalization to say, well, let's not focus on black men anymore. Because even in their death, they're privileged. Even in their genocides, they're privileged, etc. And I have a real problem with that because in the academy, it's not that intersectionality is stood up to multiple tests of interpretive or empirical uh, you know, analysis. Is that is being weaponized against as the most underrepresented and dehumanized in the United States? Okay, well now we're gonna we're gonna take a very short break. We have one call. I'm gonna ask them to hold for our break, and then I'll lead back in with them. Remember to call in at three one zero nine two eight seven seven three three, and we'll be right back with Dr. Com- uh, Tommy Curry.
from 323 area code. Uh, give us your name. Tell us where you're calling from and, and go ahead and ask your question. Okay. Good afternoon. My name is Paul. I'm calling from Los Angeles. And considering some of the topics you've been talking about, I just need a little clarification. I've been helping some of my, fr- some of my young friends, you know, with their college courses. I've run across this term, intersectionality. And from what I can discern, it seems like there's a pile up at this intersection and black men are at the bottom of it. And another thing I was wondering about is um, the author, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. The author of Americana. And I heard her do a TED talk saying that, you know, men should become feminists. But I never did understand, you know, what logic there was in, in a man trying to do that. Dr. Curry? Well, um, Adichie's work, I actually wrote an article about this. You know, um, her her actual view of feminists is her brother, right? So she thinks that the best feminist uh, that she knows is actually a black man. Uh, and for her, her definition of feminism is someone who has a problem with the way that gender operates today. And I think that if that's the definition that she's using, um, black men have always been on the forefront of understanding women's rights, of understanding uh, workers' rights, uh, work, work rights for trans workers, et cetera. Uh, but we don't get credit for it. Um, in, in terms of the intersection, and I, look, this is, this is the problem that I have with intersectionality. I think you're right. Because if you're starting to, if you're going to look at the ways that different kinds of gender identities actually intersect to effects, then you're going to find that the same thing that we just find is objective truth. <laughs> that black men, brown men are at the bottom of those things. Uh, but because intersectionality was developed as a feminist theory, it will not concede the empirical evidence. There's actually an article that's written, uh, entitled Intersectional Visibility where they actually debate whether or not intersectionality could deal with the reality of black men being at the bottom of most of the categories in patriarchal society. And they say no. They say, well, look, you know, we still want to maintain this idea that black men are privileged. So the way that we're going to do that is to say that black men are killed and oppressed more because they're privileged. Right. The argument makes no sense. Uh, But intersectionality has an ideological component. It has to be it's utilized to show that black women are more oppressed or that women, subordinate women or subjugated women are more oppressed than men. And in a world where the evidence doesn't say that, it comes up with all kind of rhetorical and theoretical tricks to get you to not focus on the evidence, right? Which now is we, why there's always complaint by erasure. Now, because we only have 13 minutes, we have a couple more callers. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to thank you for calling in and, and, and move to the next one. I want to get a few people in here. Next up, we have uh, calling in from 951. 951, give us your name uh, and ask your question. Hey, brothers, how you guys doing? This is Dr. Spencer Holman. I'm actually uh, from a company called Father's Time. I have a PhD in philosophy and theology. Um, we work with organizations such as, uh, I don't know if you know, the Black Star Project and the Million Father March, out in Philip, uh, actually in Chicago, with uh, Brother Philip Jackson that just passed away. Um, I actually own a company called Father's Time, and we have what's called a Fatherhood Academy, and uh, I, um, these men really enjoy your work, Brother Curry, and I want to say thank, thank you for the things that you're doing and also wanting to know how we could support you. That was, that was the first comment that I wanted to make. Um, and then I also wanted to congratulate you on the man not as well as another white man's burden. Uh, mm-hmm. Both of those books, I, I highly have them read and I love those works. Um, a couple of quick questions that I had. Number one is, talk about the motivation of not capitalizing the word white in your title. And then 
talk about um, how do you see us as black men navigating the political waters and getting ahead as a race, maybe sort of avoiding this experience of the LGBT or navigating through it or dealing with it. And then the next question would be the research on white well, we, people. We only got a couple. Of, okay. We only got a couple That's minutes good. and a few That's other good. people. But thank you. Well, he'll he'll take, he'll respond off off the air with. Uh, let, let me let me say first, I'm, I'm incredibly humble. You know, a couple of minutes and a few other. Thank you. Well, he'll he'll take, he'll respond off off the air with you. Let me let me say first, I'm I'm incredibly humble. You know, I mean, when people told me that if I wrote the man not that I would I would never uh, I wouldn't have a, a viable academic career. Mm. Uh, so I'm I'm so glad that it's actually I wrote it for black men, right? I wrote it for black families, so I'm happy to know that it has that effect. Um, I don't capitalize the word white because I actually knew Derek Bell back in the day before he passed. Um, and he thought that we, we had this discussion over email about what whiteness was. So it was this thing that we, were, we talked about. And he was like, yeah, I never capitalized the word white. I was like, well, I, I wasn't either. But it's great to know that you don't. So I kind of took that habit from him. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of navigating the, the LGBTQ experience is that, you know, I don't the thing is, I do think and this is black people as a whole. I think black people have to understand the LGBTQ experience because it's part of black people. I think the mistake that we make is taking on the antagonism that assumes that all black men are antagonistic to to black people who are LGBTQI trans. That's not what the data says, right? Mm. The data says that black people are more conservative, but black people are not more homophobic than any other group. And black men are not actually more homophobic than black women. The issue is, is that as you increase in economic class, status, education, Etc. less church attendance then you become generally less homophobic of the group that is but those things are determined by class segregation location and, and religious preferences not on masculinity in the same way right and that's not to say there's not some variance of masculinity that differs to, from femininity on issues of homosexuality but we find the same thing about how women perceive lesbians right so we have to do a better job of assuming that black men simply because they're black men are antagonistic to gay rights and to, to, to homosexual identity Right? I just don't think it's true. So we have to incorporate it, but we have to hold it up to actual evidence and, and empirical experience. Well, thank you. Thank you, John. Um, we got another caller from 925. 925, give us your name and tell us uh, your, your question. Hello, uh, I'm Carol Hopkins, and I'm the mother of Dr. Johnson. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Yes, we can hear you. <laughs> okay. I just wanted to tell Dr. Curry that I truly enjoyed this conversation tonight. I am going to pick up your book and read it because I have not done that yet. But I do want to say the point you just made about black men and black women and black kids today. And even back in my teenage years and early years uh, dealing with, you know, the advent of the Black Panthers and the, uh, the different groups that were organized, we really didn't have a problem with homosexuality. You know, right. we really didn't. Uh, my my mother was just such an open-minded person. She had gay and lesbian friends, and I had gay and lesbian friends. And I don't think my my kids ever really looked at it as being something wrong. So um, I, I do agree with you that the statistics don't bear out how we actually operate. I think if we go into uh, staying into a religious mode that that preaches from the pulpit that that's not cool, then you know I think a lot of um, it's not good. It's not good. So, are you still here? Okay. But I just wanted to say I'm enjoying it. I appreciate it. And I'm going to pick up your book. And uh, my son, I want you to know I'm very proud of you. 
<laughs> Thanks, man. That's, uh, Bye. Well, thank you, man. Thank you. No, yeah. but, I, I, but I think that's what's so important. You know, I, I just think, I just find it interesting that the Academy privileges these kind of bourgeois voices of people who weren't even in the Black Panther Party, you know, or people who weren't on the ground level. And then they say that all black people hate homo- homosexuals. And look, I come from a very uh, religious uh, background, uh, very country black background in uh, from Louisiana. And I, there was certainly in my high school class, I remember my senior year, there were there were people who thought that, that homosexuality was was wrong and evil, et cetera. Uh, I gave up religion a long time ago, which was always an issue between me and my dad. So I didn't have that same view. But nonetheless, those views changed. Those very same classmates that had that view then don't have that view 20 years later, right? Because in the 1990s, and that's a large, and again, look, that's a largely because I was debating. I was on college campuses. I saw gay people, right? And I saw how queer theory was affecting debates, et cetera. I just had more exposure to it. And then I didn't have a predisposition religiously. But one of the things about that is that even today, like I know people who are now prominent black feminists who hated gay people and who were who con- condemned them to hell for 20, 30 years. And now, because that's part of the popular language of feminism, they're like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm either bisexual or lesbian, you know. <laughs> people play the identity politics game. But, but what I find <laughs> disturbing about this is that, you know, notice the issue. The issue is black men, right? People, people call me homophobic when I have absolutely no issue with homosexuality at all, but I'm a straight black man, so the idea is that I have to be homophobic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, despite my research actually studying, being intimately involved with how with, with gay black male outcomes, mm-hmm. you know, and then you have these other people who have these huge religious traditions and this kind of you know proselytization of Christianity along with their feminism that completely hold negative views about uh, homosexuals, et cetera, in, in our society. But they're women, so they don't. Nobody anticipates or thinks to say that they're homophobic, right? Mm-hmm. And this is what I mean by the Cassandra. You take a definition. Like you get from hegemonic masculinity from Colin that says that black men or that men generally um, are misogynist and homophobic. And then you read all groups of people through that lens. That's not analysis. That's stereotypes. Right? Well, it's, <laughs> it's, inc- it's incredibly important because I think what you're also pointing to is our incapacity to actually identify the humanity in both LGBT and women in a particular sense. Absolutely. Like Absolutely. you look at this WNBA case with, uh, what's her name? Rakuna Williams of the LA Sparks. She just got banned for 10 games. Although she pulled a, a gun out and threatened to kill, right. you know, her, her, I guess, intimate partner or whatnot. And yet there's no outcry that we saw on par with what we've seen with particular, especially black men. So there's Absolutely. definitely that component component there and i think your work on 19th century ethnography your work dealing with with feminism and its real relationship with patriarchy uh visit the man not if you've not read it and you become acquainted to it dr curry completely changed how we approach and, and perceive those two things because we've always seen feminism and patriarchy as adversarial yeah no and, they and, were they were and you talk about it in a very different way no, but the evidence is right there. I mean, like, you know, people like uh, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stead were actually talking about how men's aggression, um, you know, <laughs> that heels have always balanced, uh, you know, wins, that the ocean balances the land. They saw feminism as, as literally balancing and tapering male aggression to utilize it better. Like, this is none of the language. There is no language. Right. And you get this from Louise Newman as well. There is no language in the 19th century, even the early 20th century of feminism being antagonistic to male power. That just does not exist. 
you know, and I think that the dishonesty, right? This is what I'm talking about, the dishonesty of the project. The dishonesty is it has you believe that white women during suffrage were fighting for the rights of men. And that's not true. They were fighting for the rights of unifying the white race together to overturn and overthrow black men. You know, that was the, that was, and they wrote it in their, their suffrage constitutions, right? Um, so we have to, that's what I'm saying. We have to be, we have to be very specific about the research and look, people are going to disagree with that. But again, my question is, where's the evidence, right? Like if, if I'm wrong, show me the evidence of what I'm not reading, because I've read these articles, I, I published these quotes in my book. So what are you disagreeing with besides that someone is also, um, challenging your ideology? Okay, we got a call from 559. 559, you want to turn down your background noise. Go ahead. Who you, uh, Who is this? Oh, and, sorry. and go ahead and ask your question. Um, this is Durrell. This is a person who's actually been both in Dr. Johnson's course of black male studies. And I've, I've read The Man Not by Tommy Curry. It's a great book. Um, and the question that I wanted to ask was... So in the face of muting black male voices, voices that actually discuss issues that particularly, that particularly pertain to um, black men, is there something that we can do to kind of like jolt that voice into, into like the public? Is that something that's, ca that's capable of being done in the United States? And if not, perhaps worldwide, because I know that the United States has kind of like a fierce bullheaded resistance to discussing anything that has to do with black men. Yeah, I think I think that we can, but I think that we have to get out of the language of feminism and a lot of these other kind of predetermined discourses that are talking about black men, right? I mean, one of the reasons that I took the position in Scotland uh, was because I thought that it was a as a new place, as a new university, and I don't have to fight for for just discussing basic facts. Like I got I got tired of that in the United States. I got tired of the fact that you can look at incarceration rates and you can see something like you know, over 90% of the of the black people incarcerated are men. And people tell me that that's irrelevant, that I have to overlook 800 some thousand black men incarcerated for 60,000 women just because they're women. Like I get, I get tired of these identity politics. Of course we should study women who are incarcerated. Nobody's making that argument. But if I, if I have a choice between studying the most representative population of almost 900,000 black men versus 640,000 or 64,000 women, I'm studying black men because there are more of them. Right. But that's that's but that's also part of the problem because when many of us were going through graduate school, even the numbers we did occasionally get, empirically speaking, were always framed in terms of rate. It really yeah. wasn't until I was tenured before I saw raw numbers of the numbers of men, numbers of black men in particular, and women incarcerated. And I always found that there was something a little problematic about that. But we only have about four more minutes, so I want to throw three quick questions out to you uh, and give you the last few minutes. Uh, the sure. first. What's the significance of Edinburgh? Uh, I mean, you, you and I have had conversations about the ways in which, you know, black masculinists have been excluded from certain jobs, have been blocked from certain opportunities. Absolutely. You, you leave the country. So what is the significance of that? What are you planning to do out there? And tell us about some of your most recent work. Uh, so I think Edinburgh is, is significant because it's the first time in history that we've actually had any kind of chair or um, distinguished professorship attached to the study of black men. Uh, I, so I think that's immensely important. Edinburgh is one of the top institutions in the world. Uh, I think last time I checked it was like top 20, maybe number 18, 15 or 18, something of that sort. 
so I think that it, it says a lot that we have an international position that's taken seriously the study of, of racialized around the world. Um, in terms of what I want to do here, uh, I want to order uh, start a center on racism, dehumanization, and sexual violence. Um, that's going to look at the rape and abuse of racialized men across multiple contexts, be it uh, you know a post-segregation or post-apartheid society like the United States and South Africa, or whether or not it's uh, wartime and genocide. Uh, I just think that it's time that we have a place where we could actually study the sexual violence uh, against men uh, within conflict. Uh, and additionally, I want to bring new conversations of anti-blackness uh, to Scotland. Uh, I mm -hmm. think that they're they're open to it, they're excited about it, and I'm excited about doing it. In terms of what I'm working on now, um, so I'm working on the sequel to The Man Not, um, entitled Mismeasures of Man, that's going to talk about some of these issues about the history, the development of gender, and the use of sexual violence, uh, again, throughout history against black men and the racialized men. I'm incredibly motivated this time to start studying racialized men in international contexts. So yeah. I just finished an article on the rape of Jewish men. Uh, I'm starting to look at uh, the rape of Armenian men. I'm, I'm going to write an article about that. And I want to start talking about the rape of African men within genocide. So I'm looking for evidence of rape in uh, Namibia and also, you know, of course, during the Congo and, um, you know, Sudan. Right. So, I mean, my work is now focused more on wartime and genocidal aspects of sexual violence instead of kind of having the same kind of arguments that I've been having in the United States. Well, I, I wonder if it's safe to say you're seeing recurring patterns in regards Absolutely. to how these men in these different communities are experiencing the world. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, once you rape men, even, you know, even when you're looking at the Congo, right, like when you after you rape men. And here's the really funny thing. Forty percent of the rapes uh, of, of women in the Congo were actually uh, by other women. Right. Mm. Uh, so but, but you also but men did uh, a large portion, the majority of rape. But people just overlook that fact. Mm. So now you're living with a society that has high incidences of rape. OK, so even after the war, you still have high, high incidences of rape. So the question then has, well, well, look, if 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 you raped all these men and women during the war and they are raping people after the war, is there a relationship? Mm. You know, and that's what I'm interested in. What are the actual mental and psychological effects of rape victimization? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's interesting, though, that what's what's leading off in that is an African-American man who's in Europe and actually has to leave the country to ask the kind of questions to, to really get to the bottom of this. I mean, that in and of itself is profound to me, especially when it opens the door to a kind of masculinist approach to analyzing the experiences of racialized men from all over the world. That's that's profound in that way. Yeah, well, you know, I think. I think America's always been behind the ball, especially when it's come to race. I mean, you know, Frederick Douglass, James Bakun Smith all left to come to the UK to talk about abolition and the freedom of black people during uh, the time of slavery. I mean, it's not that different. Um, but, you know, it's I think that is groundbreaking in the sense that this is the first time a black American, at least in philosophy, has had the opportunity for an international platform mm. you know, to actually speak about the experiences of black men. And again, it's not exclusive, right? My, my issue, my wife, for instance, studies black women, and we do so because we're interested in what's happening to black families, right? Absolutely. Um, I think that the analysis, I think the way that we've studied black men in the past has been wrong because we made them fundamentally, fundamentally antisocial. We don't see them as connected to community. We don't see them connected to their children. We don't see them connected to family. Uh, my work, as you know, completely goes the opposite way. I study black male stereotypes so that I can figure out how our society, our community uh, is affected uh, by these types of things. 
Well, and I really, uh, that's one of the things I appreciate because I've seen you have to navigate the same thing I have, where whereas you have people assuming that your work is anti-female, anti-family, and therefore, in, in essence, anti-black, if not even anti-humane, simply because you actually ask questions that others won't about, you know, the status of men and black men in particular. But the work we're talking about is actually, you know, for the family and for the community. It, it, you know, can you talk a little bit about how you see that dynamic? Well, listen, if we don't if we don't study black men as being intimately connected to children and women and families, et cetera, um, you know, or even same sex partners, you know, this is this is what I think is just so ridiculous about the whole debate is that most of the way that we study black men are all about identity. They're patriarchs, they're violent, et cetera. But then well, what do you do with them? Right. Like if, if that's your view of black men, then what do you do with them if they have to get along with families or if they're in same sex relationships, et cetera? Like same sex relationships have some of the highest levels of intimate terrorism, Absolutely. you know, of any couples in the United States. And that's just a damn fact. That's a 30 year old fact. So I don't know what to say about people who who say, oh, well, black men are so violent, they beat women. I was like, yeah, but so do same sex partnerships, be they right. male or female. Like, like who who's who's running? Who's sending out these memos that? Who, of who gets to talk about violence, right? Uh, so when you're looking at it in that way, the question is how do you integrate different groups of people who are affected by discrimination, poverty, abuse in different ways into the community? So do black men need more treatment? Do black men need more economic or employment opportunity? Right? These things all matter in terms of how you're trying to build a, a, and heal the black community and the society. Now, we've been gifted with three more minutes uh, because we got an email in, and this was from uh, Fatima, and she writes, uh, I'm listening, and I can't help but see this media attention given to the gay community as a form of population control. She doesn't expound on it from there, but I'd like for you to respond, if you could. I just don't, I don't know what that means, right? Like, yeah. you know, we've always had black homosexuals in our community, Um and I don't, and, and we've had black homosexuals that have done tremendous things for black people. So I guess I don't see the antagonism. I just don't. I think I think that there is an attack on, you know, straight black people. Um, but I don't think that comes from gay people. I think that comes from white supremacy, right? Like that comes from white people worried about their numbers. So they don't want black men and women reproducing to increase their black, their racial numbers, right? Mm -hmm. But that that's not... You know, yeah, is there is there a white gay agenda that may align with that? Sure. But is that overall what gay black people are doing? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. um, I think but I do think that there is an ideology of black black men are bad. Black men are the boogeyman. They get take up, taken up in some of those um, queer activist communities because they're antagonistic towards gay uh, to straight black men. Because they mm -hmm. see them as violent, et cetera. But then that's the same thing that happens in feminist communities. That's the same thing that happens amongst black middle class and bourgeois people. Like, none of that's new. Black people have always hated who they see as being poor, criminal black men. It's just mm -hmm. that it gets emphasized in the rhetoric and the theories of these activist communities. But again, the issue is, and this is, and notice, this isn't me trying to jump into any identity politics. This is like, look, just look at the evidence before us. If, if you have various classes of people throughout history that all hated, black men be they poor straight etc then it's not unique to the black gay community now they could be they're liable for it right just the way that anybody else is but the black middle class the black feminist movie etc are all liable for the same thing um what we have well, to do is figure out how we we actually have positive conversations about black men so that they're not demonized in, in the political and social spaces that we do control well look dr curry i want to thank you for coming in the last uh you know couple of seconds if you could tell us the latest projects to look out for uh i greatly appreciate it 
No, so um, I think that the the essay "Thinking Through Silences" that's on the rape of Jewish men, uh, I think will be uh, it, it, just incredibly powerful to help contextualize how I view sexual violence of men generally. Uh, you know, the Black Male Study series that's on Temple. I would say look out for the books that are coming out on that. We have uh, two or three that's being written right now that I think is just going to really shake the ground. Uh, and I and I say, you know, just look out for the stuff that Black Male Study scholars are doing, yourself included, Ron O'Neill, uh, Calvin Warren, et cetera. I was like, you know, these are these are diverse voices. These are voices that have a lot of different perspectives about Black men and Black families and Black masculinity, uh, and they're all trying to come together to to figure out how we actually deal with this problem beyond pathology. Absolutely. Look out for William Smith, too. Uh, but uh, thank you again, Dr. Curry. Uh, we look forward to to having some responses on YouTube. When I post the video within the next 24 hours, you'll likely get a million comments. So uh, I'll send you that link to check that out. Absolutely. All right. And thank you for uh, listening to the Onyx Report. Uh, we will be back first week of August on the 7th with Dr. Oshan Gadsden, followed by Dr. Ronald Neal. Thank you.